Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of I Hear Design, brought to you by Acuity Brands. I'm Robert Yaminen, Chief Content Director of Interiors and Sources, and I hope you're staying healthy and safe wherever you're tuning in from. So as the industry and businesses look for ways to make interior spaces and commercial offices safer due to the pandemic, there's going to be some significant adjustments and expenses that will be required, obviously. And while teleworking is here to stay and could become permanent for some positions, a lot of workers who do go back to the office will return to vastly different work configurations, including social distancing measures and an overall expectation of healthier work environments. New lighting and office space design considerations have become relevant due to the pandemic. And in today's episode, we'll be exploring the emerging and ever-changing considerations for commercial offices. So stay tuned. Well, with me today are Cheryl English, VP of Government and Industry Relations for Acuity Brands, and Tanya Hernandez, Director of Government and Industry Relations at Acuity Brands as well. Tanya and Cheryl, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Hey, Robert. Thanks for uh, having us. Absolutely. Well, I know we have a lot of ground to cover on a topic that's been on everyone's minds lately, so uh, let's dive right in. Um, Cheryl, I wanted to ask you um, the first question here. So as regional areas begin to assess their new normal, um, and as some areas are still impacted by the pandemic, uh, what changes uh, do you anticipate will occur uh, in commercial offices? Yeah, thanks for that question, Robert. I, I think we're going to see a lot of different trends, um, a lot of sensitivity, but the three key trends that we see as the workers return to the commercial office, the first one would be safety. Uh, certainly, employee safety is at the top of the mind for all facilities as workers return to the office. It's the number one issue. Sure. Uh, offices are considering, you know, keeping many of their employees that are working remotely, as you say, telework is here to stay. Mm -hmm. So they want to reduce the occupancy for improved social distancing, which means that those spaces are going to be more flexible environments. And they'll have the ability to convert to different plans for desks or even multitasking. Uh, typically, an office space used primarily for computer tasks is going to be re reconfigured. And they're going to allow more distance, uh, isolation from other workers. And there's going to be a greater emphasis on advanced controls for building management systems to respond to activities, such as this shift work. Uh, a lot of offices are talking about bringing workers in on certain days or different hours of the day, and the lighting needs to be able to respond to that. So the flexibility needs to not only adjust in terms of the time of use, but also the intensity to respond to this type of a new environment. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're also going to see a lot of offices that are going to install uh, new equipment, things like protective barriers, more sanitation statement, uh, stations, uh, they're going to require face masks, and many of them are going to review air quality to lower the risk of exposure to germs and viruses. So safety is a big issue. Yeah, uh, the second trend that we see, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I, just to your point, too, about flexibility, it's interesting that in recent years, you know, offices were starting to be designed to be more flexible, but it's, it's almost like serendipitous that that was already beginning to happen because now as we're confronting this new reality that that, that will in, even further enable that. So that's really great. Definitely. Definitely. Well, the second trend uh, that we're seeing is modularity. Um, businesses are revisiting the type of work required for the office. And a lot of employees because their work is primarily computer tasks, will never return to the office. Uh, I think that's going to probably be the case in my type of job. Uh, but those offices who do return to the office um, often have unique types of tasks, and it's re 
going to require them to be in the office uh, doing things that they can't effectively achieve at home. So traditional office space is going to transform into an environment that can convert from one task to another and allow those workers to change uh, their needs and their requirements. Workers in the office are going to probably need to collaborate with the remote workers, which means that the lighting may have to change in terms of its distribution. Uh, we focused a lot on the lighting providing light for horizontal desks, but vertical lighting in order to do video conferencing mm. is probably going to be a bigger issue. Uh, I think we're also seeing that a lot of offices are looking at their conference rooms, which are not going to be as utilized anymore and turning those into health screening areas or sanitizing stations. And then beyond the office environment, certainly, you know, schools, event centers, other public facilities are going to consider the need to do a quick conversion for things like alternate care facilities for medical emergencies or security shelters in the event of a future emergency or crisis. Uh, so modularity is going to become a, a much bigger opportunity in design. The last trend that we see is uh, one of resiliency. And while there's been a lot of talk about resiliency, it's going to become increasingly more important. I mean, who of us would have ever predicted the impact that COVID-19 has had on our work and our facilities? Uh, business owners are going to look to mitigate future events that are going to be catastrophic. And I would certainly say that, you know, this has been categorized as one of those catastrophic type of events. So they want their buildings to be able to be designed to withstand not only medical emergencies like what this pandemic has presented, but also weather events or violent actions that require them to protect employees and maintain their physical assets. Um, you know, I hate for it to sound a little bit like a Hollywood gloom and doom type of movie, but certainly the facility managers and building owners want to take action now to try to ensure that they're protecting their employees, their customers, and their financial assets. Absolutely. So I think all three of those trends, you know, safety, modularity, resiliency will lead to increased activities for building renovations. And what it's going to require is creative design strategies coupled with advanced product technologies to be a driving factor in those successful renovations. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, to create the expectation of a healthier environment, um, what do you see as being some of the solutions that commercial buildings and indoor spaces may be considering? Um, Tanya, you want to take this one? Uh, sure. And I'll just really focus on UV germicidal lighting uh, since we are uh, a lighting company. So, uh, UV germicidal lighting is definitely a viable solution to help create healthier, bu healthier buildings and reduce the level of harmful bacteria and viruses that occupants can be exposed to. Uh, it's not a new concept. As airborne surface and water antimicrobial effectiveness has long been established. Uh, most people wonder what is UV germicidal lighting? Uh, you, you hear us call it U, uh, UVG or GUV but what it is, it's short wavelength ultraviolet light that's been shown to kill bacteria and inactivate viruses. Uh, the spectral band of radiant energy is from the 100 to 280 nanometer uh, range and it's also known as UVC. So historically, industry has used uh, sources that generate predominantly in the 254 nanometer UV 
radiant energy range, and uh, those sources include low and medium pressure mercury lamps and also some xenon arc lamps. But there are emerging technology like LEDs or light emitting diodes and also krypton chlorine excimer lamps, which emit in narrow bands uh, in the UVC range. Uh, LEDs, they're typically centered around the 274 nanometer range, and they have properties similar to the 254 nanometer lamps, but the krypton chlorine excimer lamps, uh, which have been termed far, U far UVC, uh, emit at the 207 or 222 nanometer range. Uh, so the advantages of those sources in the 207 or 222 nanometer radiant energy range is that the deactivation rate of some bacteria and viruses appear to be relatively high, but the effect and the emission on human skin and eyes is much reduced compared to 254 nanometer mercury emission. So uh, for these krypton chlorine, chlorine eczema lamps, uh, to provide the greatest level of protection for human skin and eyes, a filtering technology is used uh, to remove any potentially harmful wavelengths above the 230 nanometer range. Uh, the effectiveness of GUV uh, lighting depends not only on the specific wavelength, we've talked about a lot of nanometer ranges, mm -hmm. but it also uh, depends on the exposure dose, in which we're talking about the amount and duration of the exposure of the radiant energy, uh, which is measured in millijoules per centimeter squared. Uh, so this uh, huge technology um, learning curve for most people when it comes to uh, GUV, but the application piece is, is, is a, a whole nother uh, ball of wax. So I wanna talk about that a little bit. There are a few uh, ways that this is accomplished. Uh, and, and so, we'll have to take a, a, a really good look at what's gonna be the best way of, of disinfection. So uh, one of the methods is disinfect, disinfecting room air. Uh, so one of the popular methods of disinfecting room air is the uh, what they call upper room GUV air disinfection. This uses the 254 nanometer uh, lamp technology. It's considered very safe and highly effective uh, method of air disinfection, but this installation has to be carefully planned, uh, installed, commissioned, and maintained to ensure the safety of individuals and occupants. Uh, it works best in rooms with high ceilings and a knowledgeable consultant uh, would be uh, highly recommended. So because it uses the 254 nanometer UVC radiation, there does exist a risk of eye injury for anybody working in the upper room, for example, somebody on a ladder when the fixtures are operational, uh, the training of installers and maintenance workers will be critical to prevent um, eye injury and skin uh, injury as well. There's also uh, daily uh, exposure limits uh, that if they are exceeded, uh, it could result in a painful uh, but temporary irritation of the cornea and also some hazardous exposure to the skin, including absorption in some living skin layers. So there are concerns uh, that they can be mitigated. Uh, another uh, method for air disinfection is actually installing GUV in the air handling units. Um, this is really effective at treating recirculated air. Uh, it also reduces mold growth on the cooling units. Uh, mm. So. As with uh, the upper room air disinfection, the installation and maintenance must be carefully planned, uh, executed, and to ensure that workers and maintenance personnel are kept 
safe. Uh, however, unlike the upper room air disinfection, the germicidal UV in the air handling equipment does relatively little to prevent person-to-person -person transmission in a room where there's both an infectious source and other susceptible persons that share the same air. So not necessarily as effective as the um, upper room mm -hmm. uh, design. Um, in terms of disinfecting the air and surface, so just in general, uh, any, a direct GUV uh, source is an excellent method of reducing pathogens in the air and on surfaces. Uh, I, we do have to note that uh, UV generally does not reflect on most surfaces. There are some exceptions, uh, but what happens, uh, it cannot reach pathogens that are under dirt or otherwise coated in the air. So the inability of UVC radiant energy to reach shadowed recesses of surfaces or to penetrate coverings like dust uh, also uh, negatively uh, affect pathogen reduction. So for these reasons, GUV is typically used as a supplemental control measure for reducing exposure, meaning you know, other cleaning uh, would need to happen as well. So as a direct GUV source, 254 nanometer has to be controlled uh, such that occupants are not directly exposed like in an unused office space or unused space. Uh, but the far UVC, the 222 nanometer uh, that we talked about earlier, when filtered, it can be used as a direct GUV application in occupied spaces as long as uh, the appropriate design parameters are, are met yeah. in terms of exposure for occupants. They are also the robots. You probably heard uh, some things about that. So the autonomous mobile GUV units okay. uh, they are gaining popularity. They're kind of expensive, but they're also used for cleaning unoccupied spaces. They can achieve a really high level of surface disinfection um, that can be deployed throughout a facility targeting specific locations. This is one where the staff and maintenance worker training is very critical to make sure that the spaces remain unoccupied during use. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of um, GUV is uh, it is exciting. The, uh, there's some technology, the GUV modules with the radiant energy at the 222 nanometer range are now being incorporated into general illumination uh, luminaires. So this is the krypton chloride, chlorine sources that we discussed mm -hmm. under the emerging technology. Uh, the nice thing is that, that this technology can be used within the safety guidelines in occupied and unoccupied spaces. Um, and so this stuff is being incorporated into open luminaires uh, for air and surface disinfection. And the UV lighting is actually, uh, even though it's embedded in general illumination, uh, it is controlled and operated separately from uh, the general illumination uh, luminaire. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. Some of that technology and how advanced it is. Um, I wouldn't have normally thought that, um, you know, that you could use lighting to help uh, disinfect with the air because no, no, normally we've been hearing a lot about uh, ventilation and, and filters and, and things. But uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. So. Um, so I wanted to talk about energy efficiency a bit. Um, and Cheryl, I want to ask you, uh, do, do you think that will still be a major consideration as building owners make improvements, like, um, you know, as they're maybe implement implementing some smart building technologies? Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny. Design trends go in cycles and 
energy efficiency, you know, is always important, but it kind of goes higher and lower in terms of its importance at any given time. But I think that the building owners are going to have to look at their improvements and really put more emphasis on the life cycle cost for the energy and the maintenance to determine the most effective solutions for their building operations and for their expense management. So installing new LED lighting, you know, can significantly reduce the energy uh, and the energy use, but the LED lighting alone isn't going to address some of the trends that we talked about before of addressing safety and modularity and resiliency. Mm -hmm. I mean, think back in February, who would have thought we'd have all these, idle buildings and many of these buildings were not responsive to the fact that suddenly they were empty or 20 percent of the occupancy that they were before so if you took let's say an office that uh, traditionally might have like a three lamp lensed fluorescent tropper hasn't been renovated in quite some time and you can replace that with architectural styled LED luminaires. And you're gonna get about a 60% reduction in the energy use, or at least in terms of the watts. Um, and the nice thing is with the LED, you're generally improving the quality of the light in terms of the distribution and the intensity and the color. So that's all great, but replacing that fixture alone isn't gonna to respond to lower occupancy or emergency events. So you can add sensors and more advanced building controls. Even some of those controls can be managed by the facility managers remotely. And those energy savings can be up to 75% and they do respond to the changing needs. Uh, so that really makes the building you know, a lot more responsive to the activities that are going on. The third level of that is you can add the daylight integration. So when there are windows in the space, that's going to improve worker well-being and attitude, satisfaction, and it can further reduce the energy when the lighting can respond to the amount of daylight integration in the space. And you can get up to 83% of that energy savings compared to the existing lighting uh, condition. So the additional energy savings from controls and daylighting have financial and quality of life benefits. And the initial cost of those systems, you know, often are determined to be a, a downside of that, but the savings can quickly be offset by the incremental operating cost reductions. Um, there are some other smart lighting technologies with features where you can do things like adjust the spectral quality of the LEDs. So the occupants can actually, either through like a wall box dimmer or a personal control, adjust whether they want warm or cool color, or these can be pre-programmed to actually make a space mimic natural daylight throughout the day where it might start out warmer in the morning and go to a cooler color temperature at noon, like a sunny sky, mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe back to a warmer tone at the end of the day. And many of these look, control systems are wireless, and the benefit there obviously is reducing the disruptions from the installation and adding ease of user control. So I think you know, these digital lighting technologies can also be incorporated where they can monitor the space through the lighting system and actually predict what the occupancy is going to be based on learned schedules. 
uh, I know before the pandemic, uh, conference rooms was a great area that they would kind of learn when people are in that conference room and know when to turn the lights on or when to begin to ramp it up if there's consistency in the scheduling on that. And those controls can also assist with wayfinding. So imagine a, a office building where the employees can use a phone app and they can locate the nearest restroom or printer or even somebody's office that they're looking for based on indoor positioning features embedded in the lighting system. So this is a feature that you know is probably even more attractive in real retail applications where you can locate merchandise. So yes, energy efficiency is going to remain important, but it's important to think of it as energy, not just the watts. So time of day controls, daylight integration are all going to be more and more important as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I thought it was interesting there as you were talking about the color temperatures of the LEDs as well, because that kind of plays into the whole wellness factor and circadian rhythm as well. So there's that added benefit, right? Definitely. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and then, you know, kind of bring the financial conversation into this. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the CARES Act and some of the tax benefits or implications uh, this has uh, to buildings and building owners? Um, Cheryl, do you want to uh, tackle that one? Sure, I'd, I'd be glad to. So the CARES Act is is the bill, the Corona, Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. Uh, it was passed in March, and it focused primarily on improving uh, or providing immediate relief to individuals and families to help bridge the economic downturn that was resulting from business closings or unemployment as a result of the pandemic. But one of the little known provisions in the CARES Act was a tax correction for qualified improvement property, or the tax people often call this QIP. And so what is QIP? It's defined as equipment that's used for improvements to the interior portion of a commercial building. And that includes the lighting and the controls. And so this correction in the CARES Act now allows QIP equipment to de be depreciated 100% in the year that it's purchased, wow. which is a huge deal. Um, traditionally, that's been like a 39-year depreciation. This significantly improves the cash flow for the building owners, and it can result in a 20% increase in the after-tax profit for the building owners as compared to the tax law prior to this CARES Act correction. So, you know, we've been talking today a lot about renovations are going to happen and there's going to be more and more work to uh, make buildings respond differently. And with that, there's going to be a financial concern. Mm -hmm. uh, the economy's downturned and this is a great tax opportunity where uh, the timing benefits the ability to capitalize on this QIP tax benefit. Mm -hmm. install advanced systems that can save energy, they improve the building environment, they make the building safer and more secure, and they increase the after-tax profit. So it's really a win-win. Uh, there's no better time to make these lighting control improvements in the commercial interiors. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I wasn't aware of the QIP uh, correction, and um, I think some of our listeners will definitely appreciate that and hopefully look into it. So Okay, um, Tanya, what, what do you see as being some of the non-energy benefits uh, uh, building occupants and owners uh, might realize with some of these lighting improvements we've been talking about? 
Yeah, so there are several, and uh, the good thing is Cheryl actually hit on a lot of, of them. So installing networked or connected lighting control systems like Acuity Brands Atrius platform. Uh, so building occupants and owners can unlock several non-energy benefits. So for like retail, customer experiences are enhanced because this platform allows customers to uh, easily navigate to products and discover relevant product information and also can connect the store associates uh, for immediate assistance. You know, retailers um, can have increased sales by strategically locating merchandise after they have an understanding of um, consumer traffic or customer traffic patterns. Uh, they can also improve their store operations uh, because they can visualize the live locations of associates and customers uh, for better store management. You know, in the office setting, as Cheryl talked about, um, a connected lighting system can connect employees to spaces using uh, occupancy sensing for room scheduling and enabling personal control and also facilitating optimized designs based on the actual uses of those office and collaboration spaces. Uh, building owners uh, will be able to readily uh, leverage data uh, and utilize web applications that allow them to monitor the energy use uh, and also um, do office management from anywhere at any time. Uh, in warehouse applications, oh my goodness, asset tracking uh, is huge uh, and, and very achievable, as well as improved visibility uh, and light quality with task tune lighting. You can actually put lighting in uh, that's very specific to, to that application. Uh, we talked a little bit about, well, you guys mentioned a little bit about circadian lighting. So some lighting upgrades uh, can be the installation of LED luminaires that have color tuning uh, that change, you know, um, white light uh, from a warm amber to a cool blue. And that can be by prefer preference. Uh, it could also be a design uh, flexibility uh, uh, enhancement or for circadian benefits like reducing restlessness uh, or to support morning alertness. So uh, several non-energy benefits uh, when making lighting upgrades. Yeah, that definitely. There are so many benefits to it. And I know um, it's it's been of interest for a while and it's even more important you know, now than ever. But um, so we were talking about the CARES Act earlier um, and I kind of want to get back to a conversation about legislation. Cheryl, what type of legislation and regulations uh, do you think we might expect to see um, in a post-COVID environment? You know, Robert, I wish my crystal ball was uh, clearer than it used to be on legislation and regulation. Right. It's a difficult topic today to, to really predict what's going to happen. Um, but there's a lot of discussion going on on Capitol Hill about economic recovery. And there's a lot of opinions and approaches to future stimulus bills. I think that the legislation could help stimulate construction and renovation for commercial interiors, but that legislation is probably going to center around infrastructure policy. And right now there's still a lot of controversy around how to address that. I was reading a recent McKinsey report that was titled reimagining infrastructure in the United States. And it describes an economic benefit of up to $2.20 for every dollar spent on infrastructure. So this is a really ripe area for the government to make an investment, uh, not only in rebuilding the economy, but improving energy efficiency. 
there seems to be a lot of discussion related to renovating schools and we all want to bring kids back to the classroom. Mm -hmm. But to do so, it's going to require a lot of changes to those facilities to ensure that our kids are safe uh, and uh, protected in those environments. Right. There was a bill that was recently introduced called the Open Back Better Act, and it was released and focused on federal funding for schools, hospitals, federal buildings, and other public types of facilities. So, of course, the challenge is that any bill that has any hope of being approved before the end of 2020 is going to be uh, bipartisan support. And that's going to be a challenge in an election year. Most of the policy experts expect this type of funding to really be deferred until after the elections in November or even pushed into 2021. Um, I think there's also some other opportunities that are related to incentives and energy programs. And Tanya, why don't you share some of your thoughts in that area? Uh, yeah, so the trend right now um, in the re on the regulatory side and uh, energy efficiency programs as everybody's moving forward <laughs> with their uh, agendas and their implementation timelines. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the DLC, uh, Energy Star, Department of Energy, and the California Energy Commission. So uh, in February of this year, the DLC, or Design Lights Consortium, released uh, its final version of its technical requirements for solid-state lighting products. Uh, so while these latest requirements have less focus on energy efficiency, there is a significant focus on what this organization terms as quality of light metrics. Uh, these metrics or parameters include things like glare uh, and color rendering, uh, and they use uh, new metrics like UGR or unified glare rating and uh, the IESTM30 local chroma shift values, uh, which are metrics that are not well established in the U.S. So, but with the implementation of these technical requirements, the DLC is requiring uh, all manufacturers to um, requalify all currently qualified products uh, to be back on their qualified products list, which will be a significant cost to manufacturers. Um, you may know the DLC qualified products list is used uh, by utilities and energy efficiency program administrators to establish rebates or incentives for energy efficient products. So if you're looking for a, pro a pro if you're working on a project that will require uh, uh, incentives and rebates in order to, to make it work, uh, then it will likely be impacted. Uh, this will be a huge burden and substantial undertaking for lighting manufacturers to bring our currently certified uh, and new products into compliance with these new requirements. Uh, and even though the lighting industry uh, petitioned DLC seeking a pause in the implementation, uh, citing the slowed economy and some uncertain supply chain uh, issues caused by the coronavirus pandemic, to date, no substantial release has been granted by the DLC. And so the utilities will be facing an uncertain supply of qualified um, energy efficient LED lighting products. Uh, one of the things that um, I'll jump to the Energy Star program uh, that most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a lighting program uh, where lamps uh, and uh, luminaires are certified. Uh, that program is signaled to the uh, manufacturing community and also other relevant stakeholders that they plan to uh, require, require 
requalification of all currently certified products by developing a new specification or updated specification. Uh, that work has not started yet, but we're expecting to start seeing movement on that in, uh, by the end of 2020. Um, and then the DOE or Department of Energy uh, who regulates lighting, most people don't realize how heavily regulated lighting is, uh, they are moving forward with their regulatory agenda. Uh, they also issued um, several uh, RFIs or requests for information pertaining to their rulemakings for lighting products. Uh, some of those products include battery chargers, external power supplies, illuminated exit signs, general service lamps, uh, fluorescent lamp ballasts, and metal halide luminaires. Uh, and lastly, I just wanted to quickly speak on California. Uh, so the California Energy Commission is continuing with its 2020 code cycle development for Title 24, which is California's building energy efficiency regulation. And so the codes and standards enhancement or case teams that are run by the California investor-owned utilities, uh, they've hosted a few webinars this year, uh, but also have issued several draft reports in the recent weeks. Uh, so the 2022 code development cycle, there are a number of code change proposals for lighting that focus on mostly non-residential applications. Uh, that include uh, updates to uh, the lighting zone. They're reclassifying those. They're updating lighting power allowances for some outdoor uh, lighting um, applications. There are updated requirements for demand responsiveness of lighting systems. And uh, last but not least, they are uh, updating lighting power densities or you know, how much light you can have for indoor lighting uh, along with revising some of the control requirements for uh, multi-zone occupancy sensing in, in large offices. Yeah. That's great. So much good information there. I appreciate it. And uh, it almost seems like, you know, right now it, it's kind of like the wild west. There's so much, uh, you know, to, to discern and sort through, but um, do you have any other advice uh, that you can offer our listeners um, as they're sort of navigating these uncertain times? Cheryl, I'll, I'll pitch that over to you. Yeah, Robert, I think for your listeners, one of the most important things is going to be to focus on the suppliers who have proven reliability, solid warranties, and can fulfill the listener's specifications and orders. Mm -hmm. um, crisis tends to bring out, you know, un unruly partners in the industry, and the pandemic has resulted in significant supply chain issues for manufacturers. There's been delays in construction products and those materials, um, cleaning supplies. We all know the, <laughs> the paper goods and the cleaning supply uh, demand, and it's still going on, surprisingly, yeah. months later. You know, the same for office equipment and furniture. Mm -hmm. um, this creates that type of environment that less reputable suppliers begin to substitute products or take shortcuts on quality. So I just very quickly for acuity through this pandemic, we've focused on supplying lighting for essential businesses and even diverted some of our business units like our Synoptics Skylight brand to produce personal protective barriers, the, the acrylic barriers that you see in retail stores and, and many offices are using those. We took aggressive measures early on in the stage of the pandemic to ensure continuity of our production and our team worked uh, with our longstanding partners and with our suppliers, and we're now back to normal delivery 
with the same quality and reliability that the listeners expect. Uh, so I think, wow. you know, don't look for those easy solutions because they generally come with uh, unexpected results. Right. Yeah, that's well said and really good advice. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. Well, uh, Tanya and Cheryl, thank you again, both for being here and sharing your perspectives on this important topic. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and thank you again to Acuity Brands for making today's podcast possible. Um, for our listeners out there, be sure to visit their website at acuitybrands.com. And thank you for tuning in. And as always, be well, everyone. Mm -hmm.